Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. And we are now right in the middle of our special year-end six-episode edition of the Three Martini Lunch Awards. We started uh, on the 23rd, I had our second installment on Christmas Eve, and now we're back with our third of the six special editions. And today we are going to be giving awards for the year 2020 in three more prestigious categories. Worst Scandal best political theater, and worst political theater. So, Jim, never a shortage of scandals in this town. What's the worst one for 2020? Yeah, I, I went far afield of this town. Look, I think, you know, as we've discussed in previous editions of this podcast, 2020 was a pretty thoroughly crappy year for a lot of us. I hope everyone who's listening has gotten through it okay. But if you ask me, like, what was the fulcrum of this year? What was the single most consequential moment it came very early in the year when the government of China hid the contagiousness of the virus and insisted it was only spread from animal to people. It was not spread from person to person. Doctors on the ground in Wuhan were catching it from their patients. Anybody who was really paying attention to what was going on in these hospitals in Wuhan knew they were dealing with a virus that could be spread from human being to human being. And at minimum, the Chinese government did not tell the world for three weeks. More accurately, if you look at the first cases where they had reasons to think this was the case, probably closer to six weeks. If they'd said so to the world, we could have gotten better restrictions on travel and better, you know, we could have done a much better job of containing the spread. Next to, you know, this kind of a, a if this is number one, then 1A one is the World Health Organization, which by more or less trusted China's word through the first couple weeks uh, and months of this crisis and greatly exacerbated the suffering all around the world because of that. Look, there are a lot of scandals in American politics. There are a lot of scandals in, you know, state, local government. We go after uh, a lot of governors and mayors and, and all kinds of that. But this one is probably the single most consequential decision uh, of all the troubles of 2020 uh, of the entire year. I think that's indisputable. I think China's uh, egregiously bad handling of this, their deception, the WHO just taking their word for it, like you said, uh, is by far uh, the biggest uh, scandal of, of the year. And I can't imagine a scandal that could have possibly had a, a bigger impact on the world. Um, but since I don't want to double you up on this, I'm going to uh, go to the state level that you mentioned and go with Governor Cuomo. He's getting a lot of my bad awards this year. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, despite all the hubris, had a horrific track record on COVID and the the scandal that's just unconscionable on multiple levels, and I'll talk about why on multiple levels in just a moment, uh, is his order back in March that nursing homes, assisted living communities, uh, whatever other terminology you want to use for these places where older, more vulnerable people live, said they had to take in COVID positive patients. Now, these could have been people who already lived there, went to the hospital, were improving, but still infectious and were brought back and whatever other scenarios there might be. But COVID positive people who are capable of infecting other people who are obviously vulnerable if they're living at nursing homes uh, were being brought back in. And the nursing homes were also forbidden to test people as to whether or not they were COVID positive. And this obviously led to the virus uh, just spreading rapidly throughout the nursing homes. Uh, 
especially in New York, we don't know what the numbers are. Some initially said around six or 7,000. Now a lot of people believe it's north of 10,000. Uh, most famously, Janice Dean of the Fox News Channel lost both her mother and father-in-law. Um, and uh, she has been uh, crusading against uh, Cuomo at this point. Uh, and Cuomo did not use really the USS Comfort that the president sent up there. He didn't use the Javits Center. A lot of different options for sending people to convalesce until they were no longer infected. Instead, didn't want to give Trump a win, I guess. Uh, and instead, just plowed ahead with his order because, of course, he can never be told he's wrong. Uh, and ultimately, he realized without admitting it that he was wrong because he rescinded the order. Uh, when it was pointed out that uh, he uh, rescinded it without saying anything, it eventually got scrubbed off the uh, website. But of course, people took snapshots of it, so it lives forever. Uh, and then he refused to acknowledge it. Uh, his brother, of course, never asked him about it on these daily appearances on CNN. And then ultimately, he got onto a radio show and said that the order never happened. It never happened. Meanwhile, he's writing a book about how he conquered COVID. He's got the poster. He's getting glowing coverage, not just from his brother and CNN, but from every major liberal outlet. The guy completely dropped the ball, and all they can do is fawn all over him. Uh, the guy is a narcissist. He's a total bully, and he completely botched this job. And the fact that he can't even admit that he made a mistake uh, on this is, is unconscionable. And uh, if anybody other than China deserves this award this year, it's Andrew Cuomo. I was going to say, well said, Greg, and, and probably it's good that you and I unofficially decided to split this into the international category <laughs> and the domestic category, because they're both really important, both really consequential stories. You know, we can do something about the one that's domestic America. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can impeach this guy. We can remove this guy. We can keep him out of the Biden cabinet and, you know, hurl rotten fruit at him wherever he goes. But uh, China will be a little bit tougher to deal with. Yes. Yeah, that's going to be a little bit harder not to crack. All right, Jim, uh, let's talk about who's our great sponsor today for this special edition of the Three Martini Lunch, and it's Ladder Insurance, brand new sponsor uh, to the podcast. And you know, if anything has been made clear this year, whether it's been in your own family or some family that you're close to, life is fragile, whether it's COVID, whether it's a traffic accident, whether it's a, a late stage diagnosis of cancer and suddenly that person's gone, uh, you just, you see how precious life is and how quickly uh, it can be taken away. And so it makes sense to have life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a little bit each month to really protect the ones you love? And if you're asking yourself this question, you should choose Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just need a few minutes and a phone or a laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you will find out instantly if you're approved. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now is the time to cross it off your list. So lock in your best rate today and get your family covered with Ladder. Go to ladderlife.com slash martini. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash martini. Ladderlife.com slash martini. All right, Jim. Most theaters weren't even open this year, but the political theater is fortunately is always open. Uh, let's start with uh, best political theater for 2020. So I went with something that we, we, we are in December. It wasn't that long ago, and I feel like it got forgotten. Uh, and, and probably as easily, uh, it didn't turn out to be the hugely consequential uh, political event that some might have expected to be in the lead in. I'm speaking, of course, about the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. Um, 
this was, you know, after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and how much Senate Democrats had, you know, hurled every conceivable uh, accusation at him and it turned into kind of the confirmation hearing Ragnarok. Well, look, here was an indisputably conservative, originalist, constructionist, however you like to characterize the kind of judges we like, replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This looked like it was going to be the epic struggle uh, and the confirmation fight to end all confirmation fights and actually ran pretty smoothly for a whole bunch of reasons. But one aspect I think we shouldn't uh, ignore, Greg, is that because of the coronavirus restrictions and because uh, the hearings were aired, but they didn't allow people in the gallery the way they used to, Greg, you notice we didn't have any code pink protesters. <laughs> right. We didn't have any, you know, buddy in uh, uh, cosplaying the, the Handmaid's Tale, and all, screaming and interrupting and, and all that kind of stuff. All the Democrats had to go on then was their questioning. And surprise, surprise, Amy Coney Barrett was really prepared for it. And she, uh, there's a you know, famous image of her holding up her notepad, with no notes. I mean, look, she, you could argue she was preparing for this job and this hearing her whole life. Um, but day after day, pretty much hit it out of the, out of the park, uh, didn't get tripped up on anything, no awkward moments. Um, the, the confirmation vote was party line, as we expected, but I think we have come to expect these hearings turn into circuses, and they didn't. And lo and behold, when it's not uh, a drama where every conceivable accusation can be hurled and it's up to the nominee to prove them their innocence instead of innocent until proven guilty, uh, lo and behold, not only does it go well for Republicans, not only does it go well for the kind of judges we like, it turns edifying. It turns, you know, illuminating. It's not, um, you know, rock'em, sock'em robots or mud wrestling or, or anything like that. So it's exactly what confirmation hearings should have been. And I'm sure that, you know, everyone can say, oh my God, it was so terrible when uh, Feinstein and Lindsey Graham hug each other at the end. And, oh, how could those people, I, I hate Feinstein. How could he, he hug her? How, how could, you know, uh, she hug him? I hate Lindsey Graham. Folks, don't think of it as an act of bipartisanship. Look at it as them, each one trying to hope they're giving the other one coronavirus. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Barrett certainly knew that this was uh, a possibility. She was, I believe, runner-up to Brett Kavanaugh and that uh, uh, consideration for the, the Kennedy uh, retirement on the Supreme Court. And I think she probably knew she was going to be uh, pretty high on the list when, whenever Ginsburg stepped down or unfortunately passed away. Uh, but So she was definitely ready to go. Uh, the Democrats did try uh, to, to pull off some things. You, of course, had Maisie Hirono going through her uh, litany of questions about whether Barrett was a sexual uh, uh, offender. Uh, and then there were also, of course, a bunch of senators with posters of people in their states that uh, would die if Amy Coney Barrett was on the court and ever did anything to the Affordable Care Act. So uh, they, they tried. They just couldn't lay a glove on her. She was, she was great. And, and the hearings were well run. And so I think the, the Democratic efforts uh, fell pretty flat. Uh, my choice is the Republican National Convention. I mean, the conventions this year were essentially virtual. The Democrats, I don't think, had an audience for anything. Uh, Obama they had by himself at the Constitution Center, which was hilarious. Uh, and then uh, you had Harris and Biden uh, speaking uh, just to a group of reporters, I think, were in the room. And then they waved to people on Zoom on TV screens on the wall, which uh, I thought uh, could have been <laughs> could have been a little bit uh, better envisioned. So the Republicans got the chance to go second, which always helps, and they they did a much better job. First of all, they had uh, the Mellon Auditorium for many of the speeches on the earlier nights. I thought that looked like a great setting. 
Uh, then you had Pence at Fort McHenry and Trump, of course, at the White House, which uh, kicked off the whole debate about the Logan Act. But uh, we'll lay that aside for the moment. Uh, they also did a good job of picking good speakers uh, for a lot of uh, different topics. I thought some of the best speakers were on the earlier nights. Uh, I still remember Maximo Alvarez, uh, the Cuban immigrant with tears in his eyes, begging America not to follow down the same path that he watched happen in Cuba and how much he loved this country and how much he was determined to keep America uh, free and, and away from that type of ideology. You also had uh, the woman talking about right to try and how that saved her life. Many different people talking about many different policies, the first step back. And then even the more prominent speakers uh, were very much uplifting and encouraging and talking about how the American dream is alive. Uh, obviously, you tie it back into the policies of the candidate and, they, and the speakers did that pretty effectively as well. I thought Tim Scott did a fantastic job as the as the keynote speaker and a lot of the other prominent speakers did as well. And so uh, ultimately, I don't know how much the conventions move the needle. Um, a lot of people's votes were probably already baked into the cake long before the convention season arrived. But uh, given the, the challenges of pulling off an event like that, I thought the RNC uh, ended up doing a very good job. You know, that was another good selection there, Greg. And yeah, I, I was going to say, um, not knowing what to expect from the conventions this year, uh, we didn't see a big polling boost for the Republicans after the convention. I think considering the state of polling, we can wonder how accurately they were measuring things all year long. But I don't think you could ask them to do a better job. Everything from the president's speech, vice president's speech. And again, I think looking forward, it's not we should never hear from the rising stars and members of Congress and governors and stuff, folks like those. And look, that's one of the things that makes a convention a convention. But hearing from ordinary Americans how federal policies affect their lives, that's a much more effective sales pitch. And I think you'll see conventions involving more of that and less of the, and here's the deputy assistant treasury secretary to talk about, you know, that kind of stuff. It's going to be. Uh, waning out there, Greg. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a, a great formula, and they did that on a lot of different policies. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's move on to worst political theater of 2020. Jim, what do you have? Well, probably not a surprise, and we could argue about how consequential it was, but the first presidential debate between President Trump and, uh, I guess now, President-elect Joe Biden, we know everyone kind of cringed throughout. Everybody could, cl could clearly see that President Trump came out and was determined to just kind of overpower uh, Biden by speaking over him, interrupting him, heckling him, hectoring him, and it just didn't work. I don't know if President Trump lost the election because of that first presidential debate. I do know that that was a missed opportunity. Um, I mentioned a moment ago how the polls were uh, turned out to not be quite as accurate as, uh, as pollsters hoped, but heading into it, most of the polling had you know Trump behind Biden. I think it's reasonable to assume even if Trump was doing better, he was not really well ahead of Biden. He, the, the debates are an opportunity to make a case for the for yourself. And the irony is that at second, and really we only had two presidential debates this year. In that second debate, when Trump adjusted his approach, lo and behold, he did much better in part because he let Biden say things 
And Biden managed to say things like, you know, I'm never going to, you know, I've never called for fracking uh, bans. And of course he had in the past. And, you know, when you allow your opponent to speak, sometimes they're going to step in it. And strangely enough, the president was determined to not allow Joe Biden to do that. Now, also keep in mind, there'd been a lot of uh, uh, the Trump campaign for, for months had said that Biden was hiding in his basement and that Biden had health problems and Biden was going to drool on himself. And he was, you know, look, we had seen Biden in a whole bunch of de- uh, debates in the primary. He had some okay nights and pretty good nights, and he had some really not so good nights. It was very clear that Biden is not the same guy who we had remembered at the tail end of the Obama administration. Age caught up with him. He, he's not a fabulous debater or fabulous speaker. But if one side of the debate stage is one guy constantly yelling and interrupting, and, blah, 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 and then, you know, Biden is perfectly happy to get into a barking contest. Yeah, you shut up. or ah, You know, it turned into grumpy old men. Um, and you saw the, the commentators on CNN uh, saying afterwards, comparing it to, to four-letter words. Um, again, dis- miss, enormous missed opportunity for the president. Uh, painful to listen to because the whole thing was just felt like uh, noisy, chaotic crosstalk. And uh, I just think it didn't serve anyone well. The viewers at home, or either of the two candidates, um, and if there was a moment in 20, it's, if there's a moment in the campaign that the Trump campaign wishes it could have back, I suspect that is the one that's going to be nagging at them the most. Interesting choice. Yeah, I thought, uh, again, it was a missed opportunity just because you do want Biden to talk as much as possible, given I was more likely than anyone to trip over his own tongue and say crazy things and uh, maybe get to what people had expected his weak performance to be. And we saw that towards the tail end of the second debate where he was given that opportunity. And Trump obviously came across a lot better that night. So uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, Biden has a history of being very aggressive in debates. He did that with Paul Ryan. and I think it threw Ryan off off his game in the vice presidential debate in 2012. And so maybe that was the idea. And Trump just uh, took it up to the next level. And um, who knows? But uh, but uh, that, yeah, that first debate was, was not what it could have been, certainly. Uh, my choice, Jim, is uh, what we call shutdown theater. Usually we use it in uh, uh, context of government shutdowns, putting up barricades to open-air memorials, uh, basically to make people's life miserable when their life doesn't need to be made miserable. Uh, and, you know, everyone was kind of learning on the fly when it came to the uh, arrival of the pandemic in early to mid-March. And so people were trying to be cautious uh, uh, as much as they could be. And so quickly schools were shut down. We didn't have March Madness. Uh, a lot of businesses ended up uh, shutting down except for essential ones like grocery stores and pharmacies and and so forth. But uh, it ended up going way too far and in some cases way too long. Uh, the most egregious example of this, of course, in my opinion, was in Michigan where Gretchen Whitmer decided you couldn't even do gardening. She had gardening sections roped off in stores. You couldn't plant seeds. You couldn't even have your lawn guy come and mow your lawn by himself uh, for weeks on end there. It was absolutely insane. Other people, other governors uh, also with very draconian rules. Uh, over time, we've seen very different rules for small businesses versus big box retailers and so forth. And now with the, the, the new wave of higher cases, again, you want to be careful, but it seems like small businesses are, are taking the brunt. Even outdoor dining was uh, uh, cracked down on. We saw the case out in LA where one restaurant had to close its outdoor dining, but there was a huge tent literally set up across the street to serve uh, the crew from a movie that was being shot there. And so, um, Jim, we have 
also kind of competing ideas of what can be open and what can't. We've seen the big debate uh, from certain governors over churches and synagogues, whether they can be open and the legal fights that have recently happened and the Supreme Court, especially since Barrett joining the court, siding with the First Amendment and uh, the right of people to gather and so forth. And uh, again, some people have different priorities. For example, you know, you can't do indoor dining in a lot of places, but in October, the Pennsylvania Department of Public Health put out orders on how to safely conduct orgies. So, you know, certain ah. things are essential, certain things most definitely are not, or even advisable uh, in any way. So, Jim, the picking and choosing of what's important and what's not by a lot of public officials, and I think their propensity to really enjoy telling people on a micromanaging level what they can and can't do is my choice for worst political theater of the year. That's a fantastic selection, Greg. And I just want to point out, boy, we thought Pennsylvanians were boring. Uh, when you saw stores taping off certain aisles, uh, yeah, I think it was the seed aisle in Walmart and places like that up in Michigan, um, was a pretty good recognition of like, well, clearly it's safe to be in the building. Otherwise, people wouldn't be in there. But apparently that aisle is unsafe. Apparently, if you get too close to the seeds, that's when things get dangerous. So it was utterly absurd. And that is another terrific selection there, Greg. So we're halfway done. So we got three more special episodes that will take us right through New Year's Eve. And then we'll be back to our regular fair a week from today. So Jim, uh, it's been quite a year. So I hope these uh, winners of these awards, depending on whether it's good or bad, uh, feel like they've really achieved something this year. Oh, I'm sure they're beside themselves with either joy or shame, Greg. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Don't forget about Jim's great new book, Hunting for Horsemen. Also, our sponsor today, thanks to them, Ladder Life Insurance, ladderlife.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a kind review. We're always very grateful for those. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day and join us Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.